You're listening to Podcasting Paradigms with David Truss and my guest, Remy Clear. For show notes and links to information about this podcast, please go to podcasts.davidtrust.com. And if you enjoy the conversation, let us know in a comment on the post or like on iTunes or give a shout out to Remy and I on Twitter. Enjoy the conversation. I'm sitting with Remy Kalir. Uh, actually, at some point, we should have a little conversation about how you moved away from being Remy Holden, yes. which is how I met you not yes. too long ago. Uh, but I'm sitting here with Remy, and we're going to have a, a conversation today about educator agency. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thanks, Dave. Well, so it's, it's great to sit down. Um, yes. And so you know, but for folks who are listening, um, my day job, I'm an assistant professor of learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. And that job brings with it all the typical responsibilities of being a researcher at a major public university. So I'm thinking a lot about the way that educators use learning tools, uh, particularly those tools which are open. Um, I'm thinking a lot about how those tools can support communities of practice, particularly in open ways. Um, so I'm writing, I'm teaching, I, you know, have the real pleasure of traveling quite a bit to a lot of conferences and things to learn from others. Um, but yeah, it's, but that's a, you know, a slice of my day job. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And so in talking about this, we, we decided that we would talk about learner agency and our educator, uh, agency. And so can you tell me some of the things that make you passionate about that topic? Yeah. So I think I began my career as a fifth grade math teacher. I was fresh out of college. Um, I come from a, come from a family of educators. Um, most immediately, my grandmother is a career educator. She's actually turning 90 in a month and teaches classes online. Oh, wow. She's kind of amazing. She and I can speak about online pedagogy together, my 90-year-old my grandmother and me. Uh, my mother is an educator in a less formal classroom sense, but has spent decades uh, as a dance instructor and a personal mm -hmm. trainer, knows a lot about how to work with people around their passions. Um, and so I feel like, you know, I have this education gene in me. And I got out of university. I moved to New York City. I started to teach fifth, sixth, and seventh grade math um, in the South Bronx. And I was a terrible teacher. I mean, I was a really terrible <laughs> teacher. And I've got some stories there about mistakes I made and some of the challenges of being in that particular context. And one of the really enduring uh, tensions uh, in my early career was my inability to articulate some of the constraints that I faced as an educator. So I didn't know how to talk about curriculum in the kind of way that I might understand what I could and could not do beyond a textbook. I just thought, here was the curriculum, I'm gonna need to do with it the best I can. I didn't understand, much less know how to talk about how I could really shape the curriculum in a more interesting way. And uh, as a result of that, my students were always sitting in rows, 
they were always receiving very didactic, direct instruction. Mm -hmm. Their mathematics education was completely divorced from personal interest, their community, a larger sense of purpose. And yet, my students did very well on the New York State standardized <laughs> assessments. And in fact, at my middle school, um, I don't know, six or seven smaller academies inside of this mm -hmm. five, 600 student population middle school. And our 100 students in our little academy had the most growth over a few mm -hmm. years. Uh, and that also kind of really taught me that things like um, standardized assessment is a very poor indicator of deep and meaningful learning. Mm -hmm. So I use this curricular example, uh, but again, it's for me applicable to a lot of what I was doing as an educator. I didn't understand the constraints that mm -hmm. I was in, um, which is not to say that I wasn't working with phenomenal colleagues or that my students or that their families were not lovely, even if I made mistakes and maybe how I interacted with them, which I did. Um, but over, a number of years now, and I don't want to you know, speak even beyond my expertise, this was only just about a decade ago that I had those experiences, I've learned a lot more about how educators can have more agency, can begin to play with, if not subvert, some of the constraints that they face, and when they begin to do so, make more equitable learning opportunities arise for their students. And you use the term not recognizing your constraints. And yeah. so the curriculum is an example. Yeah. Um, then there are others. Yeah, and physical space. Yes. Physical space is a right. big one. You know, we, when we think of the classroom, um, you know, we think of a room that is a rectangle. We think of it as a space where there is a desk in the front of the room and the desks are in rows and the walls have boards which you can stick things into or tape things on. And there's a, there's a physical geography to schooling um, that becomes this imagined geography of schooling that then becomes an enacted geography of schooling, all of which educators can play with. And we're seeing that some educators are increasingly concerned with things like physical space mm -hmm. or curriculum design. But we can list, and again, a lot of these ideas are, are again, not my novel insights. I'm rather talking about how I perhaps came to see those in my own work. But for decades, people have written about what some people call the grammar of schooling, mm -hmm. right? That this is how we do school. The conference that, you know, Dave, you and I have just attended, I think is beginning to really play, to use an, a word I like a lot, to, to really play with some of those definitions and some of those assumptions of this geography or this grammar of schooling. Do students come to school five days a week, walking through a front door, sitting down in a single classroom at a desk? Mm -hmm. Or do we begin to think of new geographies and patterns and time for where school happens and where learning can happen and where teaching can happen? And so a lot of folks have talked about this and they've written about this. And again, my interests and my work a lot of it, yes, has to do with technology and learning, but it ultimately comes down to what's the purpose, what's the why. It's to help educators work with and also against some of these constraints, mm -hmm. have a fuller sense of agency in doing so, 
and do so for more participatory and ultimately more equitable student learning. And I think one of those constraints that uh, I see as, as one that really hinders our ability to have agency is the idea around uh, testing and assessment. Absolutely, absolutely. And so today I had the you know, chance to just sit on a conversation that you were facilitating. It was a lovely conversation about competencies and new ways of thinking about both naming, supporting through teaching, and ultimately measuring the kinds of competencies that we want students to walk into the world with mm -hmm. and walk through their lives with. And a comment was made, um, you know, ultimately about, how, well, how do we measure that? You know, if citizenship is a competency, yeah. how, how do you measure citizenship? How, how do you, you know, put a, a number on that or say, well, it's September and we looked at your record and you had a citizenship score of this last year, so if you do well this year, you're gonna move from this point to that point. And that just seems not only absurd, but you know, really impractical in terms of the kind of perhaps values that we might share around giving not only students but teachers the ability to say, we don't need to measure citizenship. <laughs> we can feel it. We can see it. We also know when it's not there. Yes. We know the kind of inequitable, if not dangerous, and unsafe learning which can arise when civic dispositions and the kind of you know, patterns of citizenship fall away. So we know what we might not want, but if we spend a lot of our time and energy trying to devise mechanisms for measuring competencies yes. of citizenship, and even if you want to take away the number right. and, and put language and a rubric around it, what's, what's limited you still, demonstration right. of citizenship right. mean? You, you right? still might miss so, the point. Yeah. You know, it reminds me when I was, so again, I began my career uh, as a middle school teacher in New York City. And after teaching for a few years, one of my biggest limitations was the ability to connect what my students were learning in school with what they were doing outside of school. And that, a lot of questions arose from that and a lot of desire to continue to work with students but do so in a way where their learning was fundamentally rooted in the community but that they could still use what they were learning in schools to support their work. Long story short, I was directing some civic engagement programs for high school students in all five of New York City's boroughs. And it was a great opportunity to think about how skills learned in school like mathematics or social studies flowed into concerns about their local communities like food access, like juvenile justice reform. In any case, the reason why I mentioned the experience is that that taught me that notions of citizenship don't begin in an American context at the age of 18 when you vote. Mm -hmm. And that kept getting held up as a kind of like highest bar for citizenship. When they turn 18, they'll vote and they'll be an engaged citizen. And it just didn't work for the students that I was working with and learning from because, first of all, half of them were immigrants to America and were not going to be voting when they turned 18 anyways. Mm. And so that meant other indicators of active citizenship would be more meaningful to them. Also, I was working with high school students, so a majority of them were not 18. I was employed to design and facilitate programs around citizenship <laughs> 
But if we thought that the best indicator of that was voting, then all the work would have been future focused. Just wait until you turn 18. So those and turn a switch and suddenly exactly. you're a great citizen. Right. And so I was forced to begin to design things like, you know, mobile investigations of healthy food affordability in various New York City neighborhoods with students who came from all walks of life, all countries, all backgrounds, and all ages as a way of cultivating and actually learning from their sense of civic engagement and their sense of active citizenship. But I think about that when I hear of a competency like citizenship. And I, by all means, don't mean to demean or disrespect mm -hmm. those who design these important curricular frameworks. But I do think that there's a real challenge to saying we can measure it and we can use it as a way of passing students through mm -hmm. formal education when so much work is already going on in the so-called less formal or informal learning spaces in our communities, in our religious institutions, in this, you know, city halls and the civic centers of our cities, where we're seeing citizenship happen all the time. And we're of course seeing it online. And and I'm I'm keenly aware that this podcast is going to go online and some people won't understand the context. When you talk about food availability and fresh food yeah. in New York City, there's a, there's a context there that people may not realize that uh, if you live in a poor neighborhood, your likeliness of access to uh, fresh vegetables at an affordable price is... It, it's, it's very low. Yeah. And there's well-documented you know, research at this point around not only certain neighborhoods and as you just said, the geographic accessibility of healthy and affordable food, but some of the really detrimental impacts on learning and human development and community well-being that arise when people are living in what some people call so-called food deserts. And that's a term that's been used and also critiqued, um, but that's at least in the, in the, in the States in that context, um, a, a problem that is also not germane only to urban contexts, but can also actually exist very much so in rural contexts as well. When I was working with students that were concerned with those issues, the focus was how might they take their learning of mathematics, their learning of social policy that they're getting in school, and apply those skills to, in this case, to a problem context that they cared about outside of school. At the time, they had these, you know, mobile devices like Sidekicks and you know other flip phones, which they were using in networked ways to take notes and interview store owners and think critically about how they could take an everyday technology and use it as a data analysis, but first data collection device mm -hmm. for their investigations of these community problems. And it got me thinking again a lot about pursuing students' interests and doing mm -hmm. so outside of the classroom and how everyday technologies become a part of that context. And of course, much of that is also supported now by even more accessible and more sophisticated online resources. And, and that, just in sort of closing that loop, yeah. sort of brings it back to the idea of uh, being something where you're a, a politically active citizen in the sense of um, there, are, there is inequity just in, the, in food delivery. And, sure. And so there's, a, there's that social justice sort of um, conversation about, um, you know, uh, people often think that, that people can work their way out of poverty. But if 
if even their food choices, you know, where where to access to fresh fruit is significant, you know, three times the value of junk food. Um, how how do you how do you you know how does a poor person actually sure. uh, create a, an environment where their their children are eating in a healthy way? Oh, absolutely. And so you know, there's a sadly you know dominant political narratives that put uh, the responsibility of 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 a less privileged reality on the shoulders of of such individuals, which is just a unfair and ignores all the context of systemic injustice and structural inequality, which is a far more pervasive problem for folks than, uh, you know, well, and, and certainly informs how, then how they make individual choices. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think of that when I recall, you know, my work with, um, with my middle school students from years ago. We had a small bodega across the street. Uh, students would go and spend 25, 50 cents you know, buying a small thing of sugar water, mm-hmm. and maybe a small packet of potato chips. Um, and I can be uh, frustrated, perhaps, with a sense of, you know, their personal agency and saying, why are you buying a sugar-sweetened beverage? And why are you buying this junk food? Um, but that really doesn't in any way uh, try and find empathy with the broader contextual situation. Why is it that they're in a scenario where, this is their corner store. This is what it sells. They're buying this for breakfast. You know, is there a free breakfast program that they could be going to instead? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to blame a middle school student or their family for making, you know, everyday choices around, you know, food, for example. Yes. And I think that that gets, uh, you know, pretty, um, you know, I think that it's, it's, quite unfair if not unethical to make you know those calls and I, I would much you know rather prefer to critique the the systems and the structures yes. that have created those realities I, in the first place which then again I think this is you know to, to kind of bring it back on another mm-hmm. loop this is where again my interest in educator agency really really arises which is mm-hmm. that some educators firmly believe you know when faced with daunting challenges like do the kids that I teach come to school having eaten eaten a nutritious breakfast right yeah. Some of them will say, whether the answer is yes or no, my job is to teach math. And some will say, my job is to make sure that this child is fed so that I can then learn from the child and perhaps in an established learning relationship, we're gonna learn some math along the way, right? And that sense of agency just to even in some cases meet basic needs, much less do far more creative and interesting work, uh, fundamentally I think comes back to the kind of disposition that educators have towards their work. Those two topics of um, the empathy, but then the interesting and creative work yeah. kind of fit really well into the things that you're doing now around design yeah. and looking at how you can use design to help empower agency. Absolutely. So. There's a project I've been involved with uh, in Colorado uh, with a school district near Denver that is very much committed to design thinking protocols and processes. Um, at the conference that we just were attending, I facilitated a quick workshop, and, and you've also attended some previous work that my colleagues and I have done around design thinking. To me, again, it's a, it's a lovely process. It's a method, we might say, and it's a method that, of course, has many interpretations. There are some 
wonderful facilitators and experts who draw their influence, if not you know, their method from uh, Stanford's design school, some call it the D school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a close association with an organization called IDEO that's been very well known for doing some of this work. And there's some great nuance there around different aspects of the stages of design thinking, how it's applied to educational contexts versus healthcare contexts, rural versus urban, more international, so-called developing nations versus those uh, who simply have more resources. Those conversations notwithstanding, um, I see this design thinking process, again, as a really useful approach to giving educators agency to identify, solve, think critically about, and iterate upon their problems of practice. So whether it's at a school district level, thinking about aspects of leadership, thinking about how do schools communicate and share resources amongst one another, perhaps it's a group of colleagues, a group of math teachers again, who are thinking about integrating mobile learning, as I've briefly mentioned, into Mm -hmm. math education. These enduring problems of practice are ultimately rooted in people, in users. Those users, quote unquote, may be students or colleagues. There are stories to share. There are perspectives to try and, you know, really come to a deep understanding of to really grok it, as some say. Grok it. Yeah. (laughs) And then once that uh, kind of framing of a problem is done, how do we slowly begin to work toward a very quick and dirty solution that's iterated, that may fail? But this kind of a process, which ultimately works to address problems of practice in educational contexts, is participatory. It can be quite critical in some respects of current realities. And it's a far more what I might call equitable process in terms of multiple stakeholders from multiple professional or personal walks of life coming together to really engage deeply around, again, some type of shared challenge. And that kind of a process, again, can really give educators agency over their curriculum design work or over the ways that they interact with students and their families or the ways in which they begin to help build and sustain a sense of school culture, shared values. The... um the thing that you said a number of times is how do we yeah. and how do we design and it almost doesn't matter what comes next the in the sense that um there is the we there's a that, we that is part yeah. of that that process and i think that um in hearing you know we said we were going to talk about um sort of educator agency but i think there is no way to separate that from learner agency in that when you give an educator agency, they become the learner. Yeah. And I think that that's an important piece that um, I'm, I'm not sure how to, I'm just putting there's, it together. Yeah, and, and there's another we that in terms of my work, uh, well, in terms of my orientation, I think why I say that, um, you know, in some circles, I'm a researcher, you know, and again, I mentioned earlier, my day job is you know, I have the honor of learning alongside some really amazing masters and doctoral students at my university, and I write a bit for various research audiences, and depending on who I'm talking to, you know, I speak of myself as a learning scientist or as a researcher, and I wear that hat. But I've never walked away from, and I would never want to discard my orientation as an educator. 
And I really carry that with me as not just a kind of a badge of honor, but really as a kind of core, almost like orientation of my internal compass. It's how I see the world. And so when I speak of we, even in my context as a researcher, the research I do is participatory. It's with educators. It's following their passions and interests. The work I do is a we in a sense because I'm going to listen to their questions and their concerns and try and design in response to and ultimately with them around problems of practice. Um, so yes, it puts you in a learning position where whether I'm in front of a classroom or I'm at the back of a classroom yeah. or I'm a researcher or I'm, a, you know, I'm in it as a learner given the nature of the work. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you that I, that I often like to ask. What needs to stop in education? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so, so many things that one could say here. <laughs> Rattling off a laundry list of... Um, no, I think... Well, let me speak first from... Again, at least in an, in an American context, um, there is a rather pervasive... Um, there's a dialogue that pops up around teachers and their, their kind of inability to work hard, for lack of a better way of describing it. Teachers don't work hard enough. They need new skills. They need to be retrained. They're behind the times on certain methods. They get three months off in the summer. And there are some systemic, um, I would say, indicators that reflect this pervasive perception that educators are not hard workers. Their pay is very low. Unlike other practice professions like doctors or lawyers, there's less social cachet in mm -hmm. saying I'm an educator rather than saying I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer. And I hope that would stop because that dialogue is everything to the contrary of what I see when I work with educators and, 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 and school leaders. I was just in uh, New York City last week. Um, I'm evaluating a mobile learning project very similar to what I was talking about earlier and actually also in New York City. Um, so a decade later, I'm kind of back doing some of the work I've done now, but from a slightly different perspective. And I was, you know, I went to a huge four-story high school in the uh, neighborhood of Corona in Queens. Um, it's the most um, densely populated immigrant neighborhood in all of New York City which makes it one of the most densely populated immigrant neighborhoods in the entire world. And, you know, huge old comprehensive high school building in an entire city block, right? A square block. It's been broken up now into different academies. So I schlep up to the fourth floor and I meet a principal who's becoming one of the community brokers and connecting some people at a museum with some of the educators and some of the students who are engaging in this project. And the reason why I mention this principle is over the course of a number of days and a number of visits to that high school, the things I saw this principal doing for his staff and the things I then saw educators do and the evidence of what I could understand that they do regularly was incredible, absolutely incredible. And it reminded me that educators, whether they're in the classroom or they're a principal, are some of the hardest working, some of the most dedicated, 
and some of the most truly compassionate people that, that I might meet on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that given the kind of dogged reality of saying time and time again, teachers don't need credentials to do whatever, anybody could teach this subject, or anybody could be a school leader, or yeah, but even so, they don't work for three months out of the year, so whatever, you know? And it just breaks my heart, uh, given how hard I know educators work to really make uh, their students' realities, you know, just a little bit better. And I couldn't agree with you more. There's so many educators I've met over the last almost two decades of being in teaching, but then also as a student myself. Um, There are the memorable one or two that uh, are memorable for sort of negative reasons for for something. Um, But the number of teachers that I've run into that have totally excited me about the idea of being a colleague of someone uh, you know that that is so passionate about what they do and and the time and effort that they put in and being married to uh, one of the best educators that I've ever sure. met uh, uh, and worked with for nine years I'm not just saying that as a, as a loving husband um, but having having those experiences and watching the passion and time and effort and then the recognition of students that they give to the, those teachers I, I couldn't agree with you more um, it's it, you know, people people commute every day to to work. Some people take it. I'm lucky I don't have to, but some people take an hour to get to work, and it's the one idiot that cut them off that they spend two weeks, you know, two two hours talking about at work about about that, and they they kind of miss the fact that they've actually passed hundreds of people that, you know, stayed inside the lines and did what was what was good and maybe let them in when they were trying to merge, um, and those get those get forgotten, and and I think that sometimes. Um, we educators get the brunt of that, where it's the, the negative experience that is focused. Yeah. So um, on that topic, I don't like asking a question like that about what needs to stop without flipping it and yeah. going, what are you excited about? Sure, sure, of course. Well, I think that this comes back to the kind of broad theme we've been discussing around agency and also some of the work I do as a researcher. I'm really excited about how new and emerging technologies are beginning to amplify educator agency. And so again, we've seen this happen in some respects for a few decades now where networks, different kinds of resource sharing opportunities, different kinds of media platforms are allowing educators to advance their learning in very different types of ways. They can pursue interests by joining up with affinity spaces of other educators who want to learn or extend their, you know, geeking outness around some particular mm-hmm. topic. Certainly things like Twitter chats have become, you know, pretty um, kind of standard fare at this point for how educators find like-minded colleagues and resources and learn from one another. And we're seeing some pretty interesting initiatives that take advantage of some of these more creative uses of online spaces to support what teachers are doing, um, not only in the classroom, but actually in those very spaces. And again, the conference that we've attended now, I think is in the middle of these kinds of conversations. You know, here in the Canadian context, this idea of distributed learning is quite interesting because learning from a little bit more of a conceptual perspective has always been distributed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when a student woke up uh, in their small home, perhaps in the 1800s, and went and you know began to assist a family member on a rural farm, or then maybe had an apprenticeship somewhere and learned a skill or a trade in town, and then maybe had to go into a market once a week or once a month to sell goods in a community square, those were all learning opportunities, some more formal than others, that literally distributed someone's learning of a skill, of a profession, uh, across multiple settings. Religious institutions have always done this for millennia. And I think that if we really want to think of distributed learning in some you know, rather high-minded ways, we could very quickly turn to uh, more formal you know, religious practice as, as a great example of that. So I find it interesting that our dialogue around distributed, some say distance, perhaps digital, or simply just, it's just learning. Yes. It's increasingly hybrid in these interesting ways. It's flowing across settings in interesting ways. It's mediated by our tools in very uh, seamless ways, which can be very helpful, can also be a little dangerous. And so again, what agency do educators have, one, to learn from those experiences around their own professional practice, Mm -hmm. two, begin to take advantage of those opportunities to design for their students, but also design with their students, because so many of these technologies are very participatory. And a theme of this uh, symposium in the last few days was, in some respects, as you said very well, and I used your quote, you know, in one of these, we need to throw away some of our tools. Mm -hmm. You know, we get to use this thing really well, and I've got some of my favorite tools right now, and in a few years, I'm probably going to have to throw some of them away. And not only find new tools, but ultimately find new dispositions that are letting me follow my students. But for me, again, that all comes down to the ability for educators to, to, to exercise agency in taking advantage of a new learning landscape that is not better. Maybe it is better in some ways, but it's certainly different than what's existed previously. Yeah. I'd like to con- contextualize that with, with this actual conference. So... Um, distributed learning for some people means nothing. So, you know, we, we are, it's for online teachers. And a lot of us, uh, like my, the example of my school, uh, Inquiry Hub, are doing blended learning where it's sort of that marrying uh, of the two. Um, but to contextualize the, the educator and learner agency that we're talking about, yeah. uh, you, did the clo- you did an opening keynote uh, on the first uh, registration day. Yeah then you had a closing piece and you said that you used my quote. One of the things that you did was you took the Twitter feed with the hashtag and you pulled quotes from the actual educators that were here and then contextualized it in in a way where you were saying these are the kind of conversations that we're having and these are the things that were brought to your attention as sort of a, a themes yeah. for, for, the, um, for the conference. Uh, that's a unique uh, approach to a closing. It was unique. And I was, uh, first of all, so privileged to have been invited to do so. And I, as I said to you bef- before we sat down here, I've never done this before. So mm-hmm. I don't claim this to be, you know, my everyday jam, as they say, right? <laughs> this is not my MO. Um, but I pulled things like educators' tweets um, because 
to me, it was evidence. You know, again, at the end of the day, when I go back to Denver, I'm a researcher. So in some respects, I was called here to collect, triangulate, analyze, and represent data. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to say it in that kind of way, but in some respects, you could view what I did here was like an embedded ethnographer. (laughs) And I had to listen to people, and I had to curate digital artifacts, and I had to put together different streams of data. And in this presentation, I actually visually coded those different streams of data so that people could get a sense of, here were conversations that I had or that I heard. That was one kind of set of conversations that was different than the Twitter stream, that was different than observing people's actual interactions in sessions. All of which is to say that when I take things like educators' comments on Twitter, to me it's a small data point, but a not insignificant one that says, this educator's curious. This educator wants to share something. This educator is saying thank you. This educator is providing a resource to others who might have a similar desire to implement what he or she did previously. And so the platform, Twitter, is you know, interesting. It has some significant problems, um, but it's a means mm-hmm. to generate some knowledge sharing. To me, though, that technical platform has a social component, which for educators can become a learning opportunity. And that's what I'm ultimately most interested in and want to reflect back to people is, yes, whether it's with a social network like Twitter or a publishing platform like WordPress or some interesting archival platforms that are out there. Um, You you could look at Digo, for example, and social bookmarking, Mm -hmm. whatever you're interested in using. These technical architectures ultimately allow for educator agency when they're picked up by and adopted by a community that says, here's how our use of this thing meets our need in this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious about that. And I tried to reflect a little of that back to folks today um, as a way of showing how rich the learning has been here uh, over the past three days. You asked a question at the end where you said, how many of you blog? And it was a little less than half that raised their yeah, hands. Yeah, it was. And you actually put a challenge out to, to people that you know, all the hands should be up next time. So um, can you share with me, uh, I mean, I, I think I have uh, decreased significantly the amount of blog posts that I've done recently. And I'm not concerned because I know I'll go back to it. And, and it's something that um, 10 years in, I, I permit myself to have a lull. Uh, um, the the piece though is I I've always had a significant value to that public sharing of of my learning. Um, I've also noticed a significant like Twitter is almost taken away from it because I find when I post something I used to get a comment now I get a tweet. Sometimes that tweet comes out faster than I know the person was capable of reading what I'd actually written. And so it's, it's sort of changing my, my qu- sort of question of, of you know, I, when I write for myself, I seem to write best anyway. But what's, what do you see the value in, in blogging that, you know, you would put out there that you would want every single educator to have a blog? Sure, sure. Well, let me, let me actually begin uh, with a little bit of a story here because okay. I, missed, I missed the first opportunity. And I did so when I was about 16. So that, you know, reveals my age and date and everything fine. But 
I was working at the University of Michigan kind of informally. I basically skipped most of my senior year of high school and some of my junior year to hang out at the University of Michigan with some professors, which got me here to this point today. And I remember sitting around a table with some of them probably in 1999 or maybe 2000. And somebody said, hey, there's this thing called Blogger. And people write things that goes online. And I'm going to start using it. And some people kind of got it and some people didn't. And we kind of set up a blog maybe that a group of us were going to get involved with. And I never really understood what was going on. And I was a high school student. So Mm -hmm. I never really bit the bullet. And of course, the rest is history. And I have to say that I never began blogging myself until I got actually into higher ed and needed to find a way of writing that was not always for more formal academic publication. Right. And even though that's different than the circumstances of maybe a K-12 primary secondary educator, I actually think that the process is actually very similar. So, you know, again, my day job, I need to publish research. And I'm doing an okay job. I'm not going to be the world's best researcher in any particular area, and I'm not going to break ground on some big set of new findings. My research is far too, you know, oddball for that. And that's fine. Having said that, I would still say at this time. (laughs) Having said that, um, what I need to find is a place to publish my rough thoughts. Mm -hmm. I need to find a place where I can write informally and kind of off the cuff, but I want feedback. I need a place where I can put my thoughts out into the world because I'm not sure who might read it, but they might find me at a meeting six months down the road and say, you know, I read this thing that you just jotted off quickly, but it's really got me thinking about this or that. Those motivations for me, I think are very similar to the motivations for a K-12 educator Mm -hmm. or any professional who's looking for affinity and feedback and connection with people who are in a similar circumstance. And so I encouraged people to blog today because you blog in your voice. You know, you don't write in anybody's voice but your own. That's a voice that is fundamentally yours. And the blog is also a space that you can control. You can moderate comments. You could blog anonymously. You can have lots of creative control over how you choose to work in a public space and produce your knowledge and your truth. And I think that that's yet another reflection of a space and a technical architecture where the kind of social agency of educators can really come to the fore. And I think that some of my best writing in the last few years Mm -hmm. has been via blogs. Some of the most interesting projects I think that I'm, you know, thankful enough to be involved with right now have been described and generated through blogs. Some of the new technologies that I'm really geeking out on right now, like web annotation, are a great opportunity because blogs are there as the common text. And I just think that blogs, since I missed the first boat back in the late 90s, have actually persisted as a really enduring aspect of our web 2.0 world. who should be surprised? People have been writing and publishing things for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, yes. right? 
So the fact that we're doing it, you know, not through Gutenberg's printing press and we're doing so on a blog, yes, multimodality is changing. Yes, forms of digital literacy are changing. Yes, some of the speed that you spoke of, some of the ways that other platforms like Twitter intersect with blogs, that is changing. But fundamentally, the reading and the writing and the engagement with author voice and author perspective, that has kept this practice uh, of, of kind of documenting and discursive conversation going. And that's why I really emphasize that people blog. And what's interesting is you can't give anyone more agency than here is your space. And it's a blank piece of paper. And it's public. Yeah, it's public and it's a blank piece and, of paper. And so, so that's, that, that's a pretty powerful thing. What, what would you say to an educator, and it doesn't, not just K-12, to but also higher as well, who says, well, I, I don't have anything important to say, or I don't have value, or yeah. what, what would you say? To some, that's one of two questions I have. Sure, so. sure. Well, we, first of all, we all have a story to share. And I think that sadly, some of us, whether we're educators or not, work inside of rather constricting systems. I mentioned mm -hmm. constraints earlier, where people are not encouraged to share their stories, where they think that their sense of voice is one to be diminished. Um, my wife actually does a bit of work in kind of encouraging creativity. She does so mostly through visual media, but there are many ways that people can develop almost a daily practice of saying something in the world, whether it's drawing for a few minutes every day or waking up and writing a few thoughts in the morning, whether those go online into a digital context, whether those are even published and shared you know, publicly, those are all you know, secondary steps. But I think that for the educator who says, I don't really have anything to say, it's like, you know, I think we can all cultivate a deeper sense of curiosity about things that we passionately care about. And I think that, you know, in this respect, to make another connection to my work here, coming to a three-day symposium is a break from your everyday normal routine. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that if you've schlepped to the Can E-Learn Symposium from wherever you were in Canada, that you're looking for some inspiration. You're looking for something that's out of your everyday. And something like a resident provocateur like me or a colleague like you who they meet and have a conversation with kind of rekindles that curiosity or that question. That becomes the spark for a little bit of writing, for a little bit of sharing, for some questioning. And again, you know, a blog is someone's space. It can be questions. It can be visual. It could be in, you know, sharing podcasts. You know, the medium here is as much the message as has been fam famously said. Mm -hmm. But I think the message is also, this is a space for educators to, to really play in. And it's a meaningful space for them to do so. And I love the idea of play. It, it, but I'm going to come back to yeah, yeah. Agency, sure, sure. agency in my second question, which is around... Um, when you put yourself out there, one of the things that is challenged is how much can I say? Absolutely. And, and that sort of, um, can I be critical of? And, sure. And, you know, the dot, dot, dot yeah. could be um, uh, my own practice, somebody else's practice, uh, Absolutely. my school district, my... So. And, and this is an important you know, place for me to recognize, you know, for whoever's you know, 50 odd minutes in, into our podcast, that I carry all of the privileges 
that I experience in our material embodied every day mm -hmm. into my online spaces. I'm a highly privileged white man, mm -hmm. highly educated with a lot of economic and social security yeah. that I cannot you know, just take for granted but also must be very, very uh, thankful for. Mm -hmm. And all of that privilege is carried into our online spaces. And I mentioned that uh, some call positionality because online spaces can be very dangerous for people who do not look like me and yes. do not have the same privileges that I have. Yes. And so as an example of what practically uh, can be done, a strategy in that space, the master's program that I teach in actually requires all students to have a public blog. It becomes a place for them to share their work as they move through all their courses and ultimately becomes a professional portfolio upon their graduation. Mm -hmm. And we talk to our students a lot about not only the content that they choose to put online, but also the person that they choose to put online. How much of themselves do they share? Mm -hmm. Are they even sharing their full names? Do they adopt somewhat of a pseudonym? How do they share who they are and in what ways and at what le you know, level of depth so that they can, as comfortable as they are doing so, be expressive, receive ideally some benefit from the kind of feedback and interaction that occurs in online spaces? But the last thing that somebody who looks like me and who has the power that I have as an educator in higher ed to force somebody into online spaces that they may find uncomfortable, it, it would just be, you know, unethical and mm -hmm. unjust. And again, certainly we can look at all of the harassment which occurs uh, on Twitter, Yes, uh, a lot of which has occurred in other uh, forms like, you know, doxing and all of this other kind of trolling. Describe doxing. So when personal identifi uh, personally identifiable information, so like documentable information about you, or yes. the documents, you know, maybe your home address, maybe yes. your personal telephone number, your cell phone number, um, some people have gone as far as, you know, um, the, the names of their relatives, their family, their loved ones. When that information is, you know, made publicly available, it's incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. uh, and people have had violence threatened against them in, in horrific ways. And so, again, in, in all of our celebration and exploration of the, our digital spaces for teaching and learning, um, I need to always be aware of my position and my power. And I need to be you know, always reminded that people who do not look like me and did not, uh, and who, have, who do not walk through the world like me come into then our digital spaces in very, very, very different ways. Which means that I need to just, I need to slow down, I need to listen, I need to not push people necessarily you know, too hard. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, when I, when I first joined, I, I still keep it as my Flickr account image but no, nothing else because my my image and my name is very out there now it's very out there uh, yes but um i had an image that i i i did some sort of neon look to it where i created oh, a neon outline of me so it's black with this neon outline and if you know me you could tell it was me sure but yeah there was that and you know i had a um, I, I played some online games and my, my username was Zoc or something like Zed, you know, sure. and it was, it was to, the, the, you know, the idea of not putting it out there. And you're absolutely right about the, the idea that someone who doesn't have, you know, 
sometimes people downplay the idea of that privilege, but it's it's massive. Huge. Um, I think of there are two examples I can think of. Um, one very specific. Kathy Sierra was a blogger when I first started blogging. I think it was two thousand six, and she was phenomenal. She was in this shared blog that they. They shared these amazing ideas. I still use one of her images she created in presentations on a regular basis. Um, and she was heading to a conference where she was going to be paid, I think, five or $10,000. And she ended up having a personal attack through blog comments back then and, and, and Twitter um, that led her to locking herself in her apartment and uh, canceling her her uh, appointments, I mean, she was receiving death threats and the, the derogatory terms towards her as a woman. Sure. That had she been a male sort of designer with uh, the same thing, it just would not have happened. Would have happened. It would not have happened. Right. And then secondly, um, I have a large Twitter following, oh. yeah. um, which feeds itself because because it perpetuates the... Uh, and I have the I have uh, thanks to a, a long story I won't get into. I have a philosophy that if you uh, if you're going to follow me, I deserve at least looking at you to decide if you should I should follow you back. And I follow back a significant number. Um, so I see the profiles. You know now we're in the ten thousands, and 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 I've looked at every profile before I do. And if you are a Christian, there is an incredible permission. Yeah. to in your Twitter profile identify yourself as that and that I've seen yeah. uh, you know I, I, I don't know how many but there are significant people a number of people who one of their first things it's, sometimes it's before I'm a father or I'm a husband it's yeah. I'm a Christ follower or something sure. like that yeah. and there are religions where you cannot do that now and feel comfortable sure. uh, because it may bring some negative connotations towards you yeah. and so um, you know I'm not Christian but I see that privilege of uh, of someone who is because of a faith that they have that is, yeah. they they have an ability to share that other faiths simply yeah, yeah. don't well and you and I have talked about this personally yeah. actually the last time we were together yes. about some of this history because you know I'm of the tribe yes <laughs> and yeah. I certainly see that and I understand yeah. uh, the the privilege that comes with being in some majority. Yes. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I am in many, many majorities, and it gives yes. me an incredible amount of privilege. But there is an important part of my life where I am, you know, of the 1% yes. of the global population, yes. right? Um, and so it reminds me that the identities and the social context and the structures of privilege are never more than one step away from the tools that we use in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I come to conferences like this, and I'm not saying this happened here, but some people will say in response to some of my work, you know, you're very socially critical or you're very kind of conceptual or and as you know, I tend to, you know, think about some of the historical trends that inform mm -hmm. where we find ourselves today. And I I will always push on those social and historical and cultural relationships because in a very practical way, as you just said, faith shows up in people's, people's Twitter profiles. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I would not judge that individual, but it indicates a broader 
um, set of dynamics around who has power and who may not have power, around whose faith or whatever cultural identity marker it is, is normative and whose is othered. And that certainly informs then how you go about many aspects of your daily life, including how you learn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as much as some of my comments at times about some of these social and cultural relations may seem at odds with ed tech business as usual, mm -hmm. I think that if we ignore it, we further normalize what you have seen, these patterns of how people use technology. Yeah. And to go full circle, we have, just by our identity, less constraints than some people. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And that, and that plays out in, in a way that if we don't recognize it, then our expectation that others do what we do, it's, yes. you know, yes, it, it my... has a cultural or uh, ethnographic or you know, bias yeah. that, um, that I think as educators we actually have to be aware of. Yes, yes, and so that's a great way of saying, Dave, that's, that's, that's great, that you know, I'm very, again, interested and, and curious about this idea of educator agency, mm -hmm. but it's not Ramey's formula for educator agency, mm -hmm. right? I can't impose, here's how you have you know, more agency in curriculum design or in technology use or in establishing you know, school, community, family relationships, right? Mm -hmm. It can't be my formula for that. And there are, yes, as you said, very deep cultural and social patterns that others will bring into how they define that, that work. My hope is to, is to, again, help to perhaps facilitate some of that and think about how technology gets picked up to do that. And it needs to be um, purposeful in the sense that, it, you know, you talked about when you, there's a requirement to have a blog for, for your students. Yeah. Um, if you just assume, well, if they don't want to use their name, they can use a pseudonym, uh, they might not assume that. And so if you're not having the conversation about this is going to be your profile and what do you want to put yeah. there, just the lack of having that conversation is, is creating assumptions where um, now that person's ability to share where I didn't want my name, which, right. which you know, and in some cases the name is an identifier sometimes of a culture. Sure. Right? And so um, that in itself might be something where the person feels, well, I'm going to be judged. Right. Um, it may or may not be true. Uh, but, but it gets at, and also, and yes, and it gets at a broader point, Dave, about asking students. Because if, it, as much as we might speak of more participatory and equitable learning, as, as I have even in this podcast, that doesn't mitigate power relations. So if I'm an educator, and you're my student, I have more power than you. Yes. As much as I can try and work to decenter myself or as much as we can try and navigate the kind of qualities of that power, um, here's why I mention it. It's why I'm always very hesitant to tell people to use certain tools. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, so now I'm gonna go back to a question that you asked earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Something to stop. And, you know, in the kind of what we do, I actually kind of would not mind if this whole like, here are 60 tools oh, for 60 yes. things. 
Yeah. Use this tool for this thing. I'm going to yes. talk to you about whatever it is. Even even these pervasive platforms like Google Apps for Education or whatever it is. I'm very hesitant to be prescriptive about tools because you're asking people to provide some kind of information, often to a proprietary third party. Mm-hmm. If you don't read those terms of service, you may not be informed about how they are using your data, who that data is getting sold to, how it's being used for advertising, what kind of analytics are making assumptions about what you're learning or doing. And I get that I'm not removed from the complexity of this. Twitter is a proprietary platform. I use it all the time. But there are other platforms that I am much more interested in and will advocate for because of some of the protections in their terms of service, in terms of data and privacy. And again, given how much I work in higher education, intellectual property, that is very important for me. And so I just am reminded of that when we talk about identity culture and the social aspects of technology, those all are being leveraged whenever we ask someone to use this new tool. Mm -hmm. And to do so uncritically I think is a real disservice. I, I'm learning that from a 15-year-old grade 10 student who reads every terms of service and asks me about it. Is this is this grade 10 student related to you in any way? Uh, no, no, oh, okay. no, no. He's um, he's actually a student who uh, is is really about uh, agency and and oh, and, and interested, okay. and so um, and and has a unique name where uh, it's it's more searchable than sure. than than most would be. So. Uh, there's more than one David Truss in the world, but I don't know that there's more of one of him, one of him. And so, absolutely. So that's one of those things where uh, he keeps me, he keeps that connection. But before him, I I would push the tool out without ever even, you know, I'd hit sure. the I agree, yeah. which is the, I think you know, on the terms and service, which I think is the biggest lie everyone ever does. Of course, clicking on and it. And there are really, really good organizations dev- designing yes. really good platforms out there. So this is not to, you know categorize all kind of edtech developers. There are also really good uh, organizations out there that are vetting these tools. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are initiatives, uh, at least in the American context, but likely useful for North America, um, common sense education, and their work around privacy is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. They have a really good initiative that looks at platforms for you know, whether it's learning management systems or any other kind of service that requires teachers and students to sign on up. Something you may not know about is we actually, um, the Patriot Act, which is an American uh, uh, act that that says, you know, uh, the right to personal things and all the American servers are not yours, has actually significantly impaired our ability in in, uh, Canada to use those tools because... Unless it's Canadian servers, it requires parent permission. Permission, here. yes. And that's one of the things that, yeah, um, uh, yeah it, 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 it becomes this thing where I can't just use any tool if, if any personal information of the student is going to sure. be shared. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I get into, you know, I got into an argument, I think, last week with, uh, in the, again, in the American context. Yeah. Um, there's a new um, game-based learning platform. And, and again, a strand of my research, given that these themes of agency and design 
and playfulness are very alive in the game-based learning world. I've done a bit of research and I've written a bit about game-based learning. Um, and, a, and a big platform just came out. Uh, I won't mention it by name because it's not worth it, but there was a lot of Twitter activity and a lot of hype and everybody was saying, this is the future and this is great and this is the whole thing. And I sent out uh, one tweet to some people in the know and I did tag the organization because I thought they should know. And I said, I will not endorse your platform until this other group, Common Sense, which I think does a mm-hmm. great job, until they vet your platform. I can't promote what you're doing until I know that this trustworthy third-party organization says your privacy protections, your intellectual property, your relationship with other third-party vendors is legit. And they responded to me by sharing their terms of service with me. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be rather insulting because I, of course, had already read their terms of service. (laughs) And I was making these comments precisely because I had read their terms of service and found them to not be satisfactory. And I sent out a very snarky tweet yeah. which I also tagged them. And I was like, don't lecture me on just saying if you have a terms of service, it makes everything okay. Yes. Like, really? <laughs> and yet I think the, the, the concern is that if there's a lot of hype around something like game-based learning yeah. and these are free resources, quote unquote, yes. they may be free, but your data's for sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that data is becoming more and more complex in the way that it's being stored, being tagged, and the big concern being shared. Yes. And so yes. That, that's the piece where... Uh, and so I'm all about promoting a game-based learning platform to educators if I know that, yes. again, another organization with expertise that I don't have, mm-hmm. with significant legal, you know, a team and folks yes. who know the ins and outs of... Things like complex and very lengthy terms of service. And they have a, you know, and again, I keep hyping them, but common sense is a very nice dashboard that summarizes in various categories the kind of, you know, protections around privacy and identity and sharing um, that can come about. But until they've done that work, it would be unethical for me to blindly promote something if it might, in fact, endanger in any kind of way, a child who uses it or a teacher who wants to share it with their students. I just can't do that. Uh, okay, we've been going for a while. I have, I have one last thing I want right. to ask you, just okay. because, and just to bring it to a nice lighter note. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I met you, you were Remy Holden. Oh yeah, okay, so, yeah. so I, yes. yes. We've known each other for about a year now. Yes. I've seen you three times in the last, well, yeah, about a year, nine yeah. months, 10 months. Um, four times because you came to Denver. Yes. So two countries, same continent. Yeah. Since June of 2016, we've seen each other four times, which is lovely, Dave. Yeah, it has And so Holden uh, is my family's name, and it's a fake name. The story goes, uh, my grandparents, who were both from immigrant families, born and raised in New York City, my grandmother on the Lower East Side, my grandfather in Brooklyn, um, they met actually at the University of Wisconsin. They were both in university there. Um, and as my grandfather and grandmother were finishing, um, they were getting married and they knew that his last name, which was Kubikovsky, wasn't going to cut it 
in 1940s, early 1950s America, the name wasn't white. Mm -hmm. When I talk to my grandma, that's how she talks about it. She remembers when Jews in America were not white. Mm -hmm. And so they needed a name that was short. They needed a name that was easy to spell. They needed a name that they could pass with. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother had an anthology of poetry. They opened it up to the table of contents. They pointed at an author. The author's name was Holden. And when they got married, they changed their name. So, of course, I love my family and I think that's an interesting story. But Holden's a fake name in my family. Mm -hmm. And my wife, uh, her name also has a contested history Many black Americans, many African Americans um, have names that may not have been their family names for, for a variety of reasons. Yes. Um, and perhaps most famously, at least in kind of popular culture and important history, folks can think of someone like Malcolm X, mm -hmm. who made a very intentional and public you know, dropping of his last name. Muhammad Ali, for those. Yeah. Muhammad Ali, who else changed his name from Cassius Clay. And so... When my wife and I chose to get married, we knew for both of our sense of history that we wanted to change our name. We began to look into old family names. We wanted to find something that we liked, that both kind of spoke to us, uh, the way it rolled off the tongue. We just thought it was an interesting name. And the one last piece I'll add, so the name Kalir comes from my family's history. And about a thousand odd years ago, within you know, Hebrew traditions, you took the name of your teacher. So Dave, if you were a really well-known rabbi mm -hmm. and I went to study with you and we had this really important mentoring relationship, I would actually take the name Truss and carry it then into my lineage because it was an indicator of how important that relationship of right. knowledge was. And so that's how the name Kalir came into my family. Um, so we kind of liked that aspect of it as well. The original Kalir was a poet and has some pretty interesting poetry. And so it all kind of made sense. We got married this past June. We changed our name and we're moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, what I like, and I'll close with it, is um, what more agency can you give to yourselves than to choose your own last name yeah. when that is traditionally the, the one thing that... That is, uh, Never oh, I, and again, that, that here's the bias. I say that as a male, yeah. but as a female, you're. It, it's a. It's in the history. It's been expected to, to change, and right. so for both of you to to choose a name to together, take a new name. Yeah. Oh, and I will mention this. Thank you. That's that's. Yeah. I appreciate that. The one thing I'll mention though is that we didn't drop our names. And I think that was oh, an okay. important thing. So it wasn't that my wife's maiden name. You know, what was my former surname? They're not gone. Okay. We now have two middle names, uh, I see. which confuses some people, but it shows that we don't want to lose that history. We don't want to just right. drop it. We don't want to drop that name, but we wanted to bring on this new identity that we did share as an indicator of this you know, commitment together moving yeah. forward. So you know, there's a tension there. There's that both and, yeah. right? Yeah. The history is still there, but it's a new, it's a new day. Well, that, that's a great place to end. Um, I, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe we've seen each other four times in nine months. And it's great. I certainly hope the face-to-face -face meetings continue. As do I, Dave. Thank you. This Thank is lovely. Thank you for the time. Appreciate Thank you it. so much.